hello and welcome to the Fear, Vulnerability is Fear podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Here we go, Albert. We got another one. Lovely Saturday afternoon. A little uh, different weather than last week here, so that's nice. How have you been, man? It's been a, it's been a week and change since we've uh, done a, a FaceTime at least. And yeah, uh, I know it, it kind of zipped on by. It was it was a, a mixed week. It was some good and some bad. Work stuff is still pretty intense. Uh, the concert business is still kind of uh, not really happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're we're doing a lot of tap dancing. We're praying a lot, hoping somehow that this mess will sort itself out at, at, with some reasonable time frame. But you know, we're being all of us being tested. We're we're tested through uh, totally unexpected times and draw upon our you know individual strengths and our relationships and and all that stuff and and it goes up and down sometimes i wake up in the morning i'm like man this thing just sucks i'm so tired of so tired of life being so disrupted and then i wake up one morning where i'm like oh nature's pretty we just got to re- chill out not lose our shit and we'll be fine so it, it's 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 a ro- a bit of a roller coaster so how, how about on your home front uh, child is good the family's good Actually just had his 18 month checkup. I mean, he's doing fine. Uh, he's enormous. He's literally three feet tall. Um, so that's crazy. Uh, wow, that's kind of big. 18 months. Yeah, they said he's going to oh be God. very tall. So um, that's been really nice. I actually was a little bit under the weather for most of the week and um, didn't didn't go to work. And then they're like, Oh, really? Hey. Yeah. They're like, Yeah, don't don't come back <laughs> for right <Yeah>. now. <laughs> so. Um, but luckily, um, I, I've been able to get COVID testings. I'm three for three for negative. So oh, good for um, you. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it was just like a little stomach flu and cold situation. But oh, these days, man, you get a little scratch in your throat. You're like, I'm dying. Oh no, it's over. Yeah, and and they're like, look, if you even like think you're sick and not like doing anything, they're just like, call out, don't come. Like we're just we don't want to risk anything. So. Right now, I'm uh, self-quarantining for for the work purposes, but I'm able to work from home, so that's cool. Smart man, they got to be extra. They got to be extra yeah, ca- it is, cautious I mean, now. Yeah, the the health and safety there is you know is really good, and and that's what makes me feel good to go back to work and like actually work there. Is I know that I have all the tools to to keep it sanitary and safe. So, all right, glad you glad you're feeling better. I think yes. you're gonna get you're gonna get a a jolt of good positive energy today. I need it, man. <laughs> I, I had the I had the the privilege of uh, chatting a little bit with our guest today, and he's uh, he's really a, a really really great dude. Great energy, got, got some fun stories to share, and uh, uh, you'll introduce him officially. But if you want, we're uh, Chris Mazder is our guest today. You'll you'll do the little bio, but uh, just very very briefly, I'll tell you. Um, uh, I. I'm always scouting for who is from upstate New York because my feed is about life upstate and then the Hudson Valley. And uh, we have a couple of, uh, couple of uh, Hollywood types. Uh, so actually, they're not, not my favorite actors, so I'm not going to even mention them. But then suddenly I get this, this notice of Saranac Lake. I get a couple of posts on Instagram from Saranac Lake, and they recommend that I follow Chris Mazder. And I'm like, why do I know this dude? Uh, and I remember years ago watching on television, they were really pushing this, this luge guy uh, at the Olympics. And it was like, he would come on and he's, and he's so smiling and he's so energetic. And you're like, even if you didn't give a shit about luge, all of a sudden this guy made you want to care about it, which I love that. That just was like, cool. So I started following him on Instagram and suddenly it's like positivity, nature, loving, a uh, lot of just really good positive vibes and just on a, 
uh, you know, on a lark, I said, drop him a note, let maybe he'll come on the show. And he wrote back, so he gets the good guy of the year award. So uh, without further ado, I'll let you introduce Chris. Yeah, totally, man. Um, Chris Master was born in Massachusetts. Uh, he was just a few years old when his family moved to the Adirondack region of upstate New York, not far away from Lake Placid, which was the site of the 1980 Olympic Winter Games and home of the one of the only two loose tracks in the United States. Chris got his start at just eight years old. On February 12th, 2018, on the other side of the world in Pyeongchang, South Korea, Chris made history by becoming the first ever American athlete to win a medal in the men's single luge event. Today, Chris not only continues to be one of the fastest luge athletes in the world, but looks to inspire and motivate people and be the best versions of themselves. Chris, we're super stoked to have you on the show, man. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's very Adam, that last line about being the best versions. Adam's really into positivity. You, if you follow his feed, he's constantly giving great advice. So I, I knew you guys were going to connect. Oh, yeah. That's what I was going to say. You know, I was uh, taking a quick search online because he was like, hey, check him out. I'm just like, man, he's uh, he's really doing stuff. And um, it looks like you're really giving back, especially with the kids and impacting the sport. Um, I mean, it just seems like that's such a big part of your life. I mean, you're you're all over the place, man. So tell us a little bit about about like, you know, um, I mean, the most I really know about luge, you know, I'm going to say, you probably hear this all the time, is, uh, you know, cool runnings, and that's pretty much it. So <laughs> how do you, like, really communicate to, you know, the average Joe that, um, you know, what, what what's your sport is all about? The way to start here is I always consider luge to be ultimate sledding because um, it okay. really <laughs> is just ultimate sledding. So even though, like, oh, what's luge? It's, like, literally it's something that everyone does, but most people grow out of it at – five or six years old, and I just never did. So now I'm 32 years old, and I'm a professional sledder still, which is awesome. Um, but coming back to Cool Runnings, it's funny because that's kind of how I got my start. So I grew up close to Lake Placid, about 45 minutes away. And sure. my friends and I, we saw the movie Cool Runnings. And it was like serendipitous because there was a track 45 minutes away. And at eight years old, we could go and try bobsled. So we could actually be a part of like the Cool Runnings movie. So we would, um, the neighborhood kids, we get like one or two parents to just trade off throughout the winter. And we'd go up like on a Wednesday night. I can't remember like what day it is, but that was what we would do all winter long. And there was a problem with bobsled though. It was the cool sport. So the line was really long. You're only driving half the time. The other time, like you're just sitting in the back doing nothing. And because the turnover was slow, the line was long, and you're only driving half the time, you're only driving for one or two runs a night. And it wasn't until we learned about this other sport um, that was kind of up in like the hills a little bit further, there was no line up there. And that sport was called luge. So literally, if I ran from where we finished back to where we started, I could get 10 runs a night. So being the ADHD kid that I was, I hated waiting in lines. So it was actually pretty, pretty clear that I chose lose because the line was shorter and it was the best decision ever. So that's how I got into luge. It was literally just, um, it was, it, the line was shorter and it was so much fun. And it's, it was right away. I knew that it was something that I wanted to do. Um, but so we did that for about three years. And then up in Lake Placid, this was right before what was called the Goodwill Games. 
they destroyed the old luge track and they rebuilt what we now use there, which is a combined bobsled skeleton and luge track. So that local program for kids ended. And the only way to keep doing luge was to try out for the team. So my parents asked like, oh, how do we like keep moving forward? And they're like, okay, so what you're going to have to do is go to Michigan, go to this track. And I was really lucky where one of the coaches, one of the development coaches kind of remembered me and they were like, oh no, we'll, we'll put him into a screening camp in Lake Placid. So I only got to take five runs when I was 11 years old. And it was during this camp, I just showed up as a local and I don't know what they saw me, but next year they put me on the development team. I was 12 years old. Uh, and another crazy thing happened probably because I was local. I was the only kid that was able to make it high enough on the start to race in the junior national race. And I made it down, didn't finish in last place. And at 13 years old, they invited me to travel to Europe. So it was a, it was a pretty quick introduction to the sport. And at 13 years old, I was traveling around the world competing in luge. That is wild, man. Like that is a, a very like kind of quick start from, from eight to 13. It's like, Hey, I'm having <laughs> fun. Like let's hang out with my friends and then, okay. Am I, am I a professional now? Yeah, but, it was, um, it was really surreal. It was pretty much just like that. Like what happened? Yeah. One one thing I saw kind of like in, in your bio and, and talking about you is that this was your discipline. So when did it come from like you know having fun and you know hanging out with your friends uh, in the local neighborhood to something you like you know really you know bogged down and said hey like this is me like this is what I'm doing um, and really worked at it. Was there ever like a transition or was it kind of just love at first sight? So I, I think. It, it was love at first sight. I mean, I, I love going fast. I love, so I, I like to say, I really do think that luge is my medicine where like I was diagnosed with ADHD at four, re-diagnosed at five, six. They're like, okay, definitely kind of, uh, he has ADHD. And luge is the only thing besides driving on the Autobahn or racing your motorcycle where you're fully involved with what you're doing, where like, it's the only time in the winter during the day where it's like, I am fully doing something and it feels so good. So I, I think maybe at a young age, it was, it was a sport that required full focus and there's not many things that I could, you know, get all of my attention on at one time. So I think that's why it was love at first sight for me. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was like, I always felt so good afterwards because it was <laughs> one of the only things that could really like get my brain to like hold like itself together. So that was part of it. And then the, the next part was when I went off to Europe, it was still a lot of fun, but now I'm going to these new tracks and it's, it's, it definitely was scary. Like I was nervous. Like you, you crash a lot. You have like oh, literally bat, black and blue arms, like after a couple of days of training. But what I loved was just traveling the world and meeting people from around the world. And that was so much fun that it actually pushed me past, like out of my comfort zone. Like I was scared when I was 13, 14, 15 to make it up to these start heights, but cause I was really young. Like most people, I think there was one 15 year old and then everyone else was 16 year olds or like, or up. So I was way over, I was in the deep end. I barely knew how to swim and I was in the deep end, but it was so much fun traveling the world that there was so many different things that kept me in this sport when a lot of people ended up quitting when they were young. So 
I was very fortunate for sure. In, in those travels, did, did you have, do you have a memory of one particular track and one particular place that was just the coolest thing ever, or were they all pretty damn cool? I mean, when you're 13 years old, just going to different countries, when you're meeting people from different countries, it's like, oh, I talked to someone from Slovenia today, right? Like you become friends, like at that age, when you're like 13, 14, yes, it's a competition. But what's awesome about Luge is that it's just you and the track. So it's like, if, if I mess up, it's not your fault. So you don't really hold grudges against your competitors. So like even today, like I would say I'm very close. Like some of my best friends are, you know, we're, we're some of my biggest competitors. So it, it allows you just to kind of become friends with people from around the world and learn about them, right? Like it, it's really cool where I, I almost like to go to tracks a day early so I can see some of my like retired old luge friends. Um, <laughs> But it's, but it's still challenging. So growing up, yeah, you kind of have to balance that. Like the Alps were so amazing. You know, growing up in northern New York, I love mountains. I love being outside. And then you get to this, like, to the Alps. And you're like, wow, this is Switzerland. Like these mountains are huge. Like this is Bavaria. Like it's just so cool seeing different places around the world. And at such a young age, it's, it really was special. I mean, I grew up really quick. Uh, definitely, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't sailing, easy sailing. Imagine a 13-year-old like joining a bunch of 18-year-olds and trying to tag along. They don't really like it. So I definitely, uh, definitely was picked on a little bit. Uh, I, learned, I learned manners. I learned how the world worked. And I, I became a better person. And I'm really close with everyone. But yeah, it was, uh, was kind of hard. Definitely picked on. Hazing was a thing. But I ended up being okay. What what was the uh, the sneakiest haze thing without oh, getting into like anything that would be potentially illegal? Oh, chart like man, like dead legs were a constant thing. Uh, <laughs> that that really sucked because we'd have to walk up the the you know the hill every day and just getting a dead leg like every single day. Besides hitting walls in the track, like I'm bruised all over, and then you got that one spot where the knee comes in. But also just like you know, no one really wanted to hang out with you, so you're. 14 years old, 13 years old. And you're just like, all right, I guess I'm just here by myself. But, um, okay. Could you explain to me, what would you say are like two or three qualities of a person that would make them a good loser? What do you need? Do you need strength of certain body parts? Is it aerodynamics? Is it just courage? Is it what, is it something about your body mass? Like what goes into the mix to make the, a good loser? That's a great question. We, <laughs> everyone's like, oh, do you have to be a bigger person, a smaller person? And if you look at the, uh, literally one of the tallest guys and one of the, the shortest guy, they were one, two, uh, just two years ago. I think it's more of a mental sport than anything where like, yeah, this start, we, we hold on to these handles. Uh, we rock back and forth and our explosive start is only about four seconds long. So we pull off of these handles. We have spikes that are taped to our fingers. We paddle into the ice anywhere from two to six times, and then we lay down. So the explosive part is just, it's really quick. It, it's, it's very important. Like you, you can't win with a good start, but you can lose if you don't have a good start. But then when you're going down, body control is a really big thing. So it's, if you were to find like, an, like, a, like a kid who's good at a, just a whole bunch of different sports, I would say that person has a good chance of being a loser because you have to fix your mistakes really fast. Like when you're going 90 miles an hour, um, 
you know, things happen quickly. And the best, the, the fastest athlete isn't the person who drives the best lines. It's the person that fixes their mistakes the fastest because you're not going to have a perfect run. Really, it's, it's a mile long tube of ice. You have these metal runners with very little friction. So to, to drive a perfect line in perfect position for that entire mile, it's impossible. Like I, I've never had a perfect run. I've had a pretty damn close, but the person who fixes their mistakes the fastest. So mentally, you have to be really calm under pressure because a lot of times you're trying to do this blind because that's more aerodynamic. We try to put our heads back so we can't see. So when we show up to a track, like my first run, I'm always looking a little bit just to kind of, just for timing. And as I get more comfortable by run five, I'm trying to do the whole run blind. So when you're coming out of a corner and you know you're like a couple millimeters off the wall, if you tense up, you're going to like get out of control. So you have to stay relaxed in those moments. So really, uh, an athlete who can pick up many different sports quickly, just because, you know, they're able, they're pretty coordinated. And then someone who's mentally tough, um, that's going to make a really good luge athlete. The, the mental aspect is what I find fascinating, um, because it is just like, you know, it, that mental part of it is like, you know, across all sports, across all business, across all kind of life um, is just, you know, that kind of mental resilience and being okay with mistakes and in the moment thinking um, like what, what else, like, did your coaches at all, like um, tell you about like mindfulness practices or like, did you have any meditation or anything like that? Or was it all like, Hey, we're just, you know, we're on the track or was that, you know, your meditation practice was the actual like practice of luge because, you said 90 miles per hour and then not looking. I hit like 80 in my car and I'm like, all right, we're really going now, you know? And then you're just like, Phew. yeah. Same thing, Adam. <laughs> you guys need to and spend I'm, more time on the Audubon. 80's like, you're in no, the right lane going slow. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. And I've driven the Audubon. Well, I, I didn't personally go. I, I don't drive that fast, but my buddy Brady was in the car. We rented um, a Mercedes and we're like, okay, cool, man. We're, we're, on, we're on a road trip. And we, we went about like 125 miles per hour, um, like on there. And, and we were still getting passed by like the Porsches and Lamborghinis and stuff. Like, so we were going fast. And then I was, I was, I was like, you know how you kind of have like those fake brakes in the passenger seat. I was just like <laughs> <laughs> doing that. So I can't imagine doing that. Like for me, on like, a tiny little sled. <laughs> yeah. On a tiny little sled. And I played hockey too. So it was like, it's all kind of in my environment, but like just that, like, just, I don't know. There just is a complete different aspect of it. And is it, it, I, maybe I'd love it if I tried it, but the way you describe it and the way that you go in blind and just react to very small things seems terrifying, <laughs> like well, absolutely terrifying. So, so here's the worst part about luge. It takes a really long time to develop the skills to be able to do this. So we start at the, we start like a quarter of the way up for years, then we move to halfway up then three quarters. And then sometimes it's like, Okay, we're only going to go up a curve higher. So if you were to get into the sport today, if you were to do it every day in the winter, I would say it would probably take you by the end of your second year where you could even pull off the top. I'm not saying you're going to have a good run, but you might oh, yeah. be able to make it down. Where like bobsled and skeleton, the because the runners are around and the way they only like bobsled, you're only driving with your hands, you can get to the tops of the tracks in about two weeks. So that's the, the worst part about luge is that it's, it's, you have to put in the time. If you start after the age of 15, it's too late. You, you won't develop fast enough to be able to compete internationally. So 
Like most people start before 13. Um, so I started wow. when I was eight. Most of like the Europeans, yeah, they're starting when they're eight to 10 years old. So to do this, it just takes a long, long time. Um, and that's what people don't realize is that like, oh, this athlete's 21 years old. It looks like they're fresh into the sport. It's like, yeah, they've been doing this for about 10 years, like every single day in the winter. So, but that's like with anything, you start small and it, it, it takes time. It sucks. Like there's like seven years that absolutely suck where you're crashing, where you're bruised and mentally staying with it. That's the hardest part of Luke. Um, so like I, I can, I know that like for this next Olympics, yeah, there's probably going to be only six guys that are really going to be able to compete for three spots because all the other kids that are developing there, it takes so many years. Um, and everyone else, right? Like if you don't make it to the top by the time you're 23, 24, it's like, well, I should probably move on with my life. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's like with everything, it takes time, a lot of time and a lot of suck. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But you got to enjoy it. You got to enjoy it. <laughs> when you hey. hit your, your, that you did. Uh, when I hit what? Your first Olympics. I was, I was 21 years old, uh, at my first Olympics. Um, yeah. So I, when I was 17, I actually surprised a lot of people and, um, I was the alternate. It was, it was a race off between my, uh, my good friend, Miles, we're, we're sharing a room and, uh, we were tied up after all of the pre-qualification. So it went to a single race off and, uh, it was funny going to, to bed, like the night before him and I were like, you know, one of us is going to the Olympics tomorrow. And, uh, he ended up beating me by 0.161. He was, he was also 28 and I was 17, but, um, it, it's, uh, yeah, it just takes, takes a lot of work. But your first Olympics is, is a pretty powerful thing just because, you know, it's, it's crazy the amount of time. And, and I, I really do mean this. By the time you get to the Olympics, after all the qualifications, you're, you're like, oh, like once you qualify for the Olympics, your stress level comes down because there's so much stress in all of the qualifications, every race leading up to it. Like every sport is different, but it's like right now, like we're, we know the qualification process and it's like literally seven or eight races. And if you crash at one of those, there's a good chance that you might lose enough points where someone who you might have better results, but they could still beat you. Right. So just qualifying for the Olympics, that is a very stressful thing. And then once you're at the Olympics, it's, it's actually really nice because you can just kind of like perform. You're like, all right, we've done everything. Like, even though this is the biggest stage, it, <laughs> it's kind of nice. Like you, you are less nervous at the Olympics than for all the qualification. Um, I, I truly believe so, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the, one of the most amazing things ever. Like everyone talks about opening ceremonies, opening ceremonies, but I think why the opening ceremonies is so cool is because you're in a room full of people and most of the people there are like, it's their, that's what they've been trying to accomplish their entire life. And like the amount of like energy in that room, it's uh, it's pretty powerful. It's also really cool to just be with everyone from Team USA. So it's like everyone's like walking in together, celebrating like this huge achievement in everybody's life. Um, and because like we do winter sports, you know, we don't have big crowds. And so when you walk into a stadium of you know eighty thousand people and they're just like all screaming, it's uh, it's one of the best feelings you'll ever have in your entire life you kind of things had gotten kind of rough for a while. Um, what was going on? 
Yes. Yeah, so this last Olympics in 2018 was my third Olympics. And in, in my career, like, so I made my first Olympics at 21. Uh, I finished 13th, which was my personal best result at the time. And uh, yeah, like things were, were looking up when I was 25. I finished fifth overall in the world when I was 26. I finished third overall in the world. Um, at, at the Olympics in Sochi, I finished 13th place again. And so with two years going into like this past like Olympics at 2018, uh, I, I thought I was on top of the world. I was ranked, you know, third or fifth overall. I was winning World Cups. And then all of a sudden, like, the, the two seasons before the Olympics, I just wasn't having any results. Like I was showing up, I was strong. I was having great starts. And for whatever reason, I was just kind of finishing like in the top 15, the top 20, top 25. And I, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong and neither could my coaches. And so the year before the Olympics, I didn't have any good results. And it's like, okay, that's fine. Like we're like, I'm still here mentally giving a hundred percent, working on my sled, working on my start. And then in the Olympic year, when all of these race offs happened, like I still, I still wasn't doing very well. Um, and I was, I, I felt like I was performing well because luge is physical, mental, and it's also the sled is a really big part of the sport. And I don't know what was wrong, but essentially if I, I knew that if I didn't get a good result the year of the Olympics, um, I was going to basically lose all my funding. And I mean, at the time, like I'm an athlete rep, I, I'm, I'm the chair of the athletes commission for the Federation of International Luge. And I, I really do feel like there's things that I still want to accomplish, not only in this sport, but out of this sport. And if I didn't get a good result, I was ready to retire. And that, that I, entered the season, you know, as the top U.S. guy, but not having any results. And after the first race, no, not a really good result. Second race, I'm the number two guy. Third race, I'm the number three guy. I'm actually, I barely qualified for the Olympics. I was the last U.S. man to qualify for the Olympics. And I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, there's really not a whole lot of money in this sport. And so if I wasn't to medal, I would go down to $500 a month. That would be my stipend. You can't live off of that, you know. And, you know, my wife now, my girlfriend at the time, we had like, you know, some serious talks. Like I sold my car uh, in the beginning of the season to have some money available in case I needed to buy equipment. Like I was ready to basically hang up my sled, not have any money in the bank, uh, not be able to pay rent or, or have a car. And that's just the life of an athlete in a small sport. We all kind of go in knowing that um, things are really tough. You have to have jobs on this side. And so I qualified for my third Olympics, uh, the last race before Christmas. So, I mean, that's where all the stress like, let's go. So it's like, okay, I'm going to the Olympics and I'm just driving full steam. I'm, I'm buying equipment. I'm trying different things on my sled. I actually got in trouble because I bought steels from this Slovakian company and my organization found out. And because of an agreement they had with them, I had to give those steels back. Like it's like, I'm trying to do everything that I possibly can. And like, I, I basically with two races to go, like I, you can call it like being out of control. Like I am like 
my runners are round. I have no control in the ice. I'm trying to go as fast as possible, taking as many risks, but I'm like, I'm pushing the risk. I'm not getting results. I mess up that race. Uh, and then there's one final race before the Olympics. And, you know, at this point in my life, it's like, okay, I have two weeks before the last race of my career. And that's kind of a scary thought when you're kind of pushed into retirement, especially when like, I personally felt that I could succeed. I knew that I could do it, but I was the last person to qualify for the Olympics. I was last on the priority list for my organization, you know, besides my family, my wife, like my close friends, no one really believed in me. Um, funny story going into the Olympics, you couldn't even bet on me in most places. Like I wasn't even on the odds. Uh, but then, man, this cr the craziest thing happened in Segulda, Latvia, and that was the last race. And this is during the, uh, the Russian doping scandal. Like right before the Olympics, they're like, okay, um, the McLaren report comes out. Are these Russian athletes going to be able to compete? And no one really knew. And so I got a call from a friend that's like, hey, Chris, um, this Russian athlete wants to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, so do I just head to the track? So I, I, I go to the track and I find this uh, guy, Vladislav, who speaks you know, good English and Russian, and I ask him to translate. And so this guy, Semen Pavlichenko, he's a world champion. He's one of the best luge athletes. He won the overall two years ago. And he basically comes up to me. He's like, Chris, like, I see you, you know, trying really hard. He's like, I want to give you my sled because if – I can't go to the Olympics. I want to give you my sled so you can win. And like, just knowing that his sled was the fastest, that was like a win for him. And that's something that never happens in the sport of luge. Like it's all trade secrets. It's all proprietary information. Here's this like Russian athlete who is willing to help out a U.S. athlete, which first off is unheard because all you hear in the news is how much the U.S. and Russia hate each other. And here's this Russian athlete basically like, I see you trying really hard. Like you're the best chance that my sled has to go to the Olympics. And that was like, like that, that, that I broke down. I was like crying, like just to, just to get like a hundred percent for two years to get nothing out of it. And here in like the 11th hour is this Russian guy trying to help me out. Um, yeah, it was a pretty powerful moment for me. Just, just what people can do, you know, like, it doesn't matter. Like, what country you're from, who you are. Like, it doesn't matter anything about you. It's like humans, we're all humans. And yeah, this Russian guy went to help me out. So I took the sled, got in my car, cried hysterically, uh, drove it back to like the workshop, told the coaches what I was doing. They said I was crazy. All like, it's something you don't do. Like this track, you don't just take someone else's sled off because it drives a little differently. Um, so anyways, I used it and I didn't quite fit in it. And because of that, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to keep, like make it down the track. But what I did get out of it was like the geometry, like, okay, like this is how it should feel. This is how it should look. And so I started changing my sled that night to kind of mimic his. And that's what, like the next day I show up to training and I'm like way faster. And so in that race, the last race before the Olympics, I finished in sixth place, which was my best finish in two years. So I was like, holy shit. All right. There's a chance here. Like, don't give up hope. Like, and 
it, it was such, such a crazy thing because like I'm going to the Olympics knowing that if I don't medal, it's, that's it. That's the end of my career. And so you think that there's all this pressure, but it was actually, it was really peaceful. It was, it was really, it was really cool knowing that it's like, I really had to be at peace with myself. Like, I, I think one thing that athletes and I think all humans do is that like my definition of my self-identity was results-based. And that's something that's really dangerous to do as an athlete. If my, like, if all I think of myself is what results I get, I'm going to be like uh, completely out of line with who I am. So it's like the last couple of weeks before the Olympics, like I was completely comfortable with who I am. I, I know I'm a good person. I know I want like what's best for everybody. I know I work hard. So even though I didn't have results, like I went into the Olympics with like probably the best mindset I ever could have where I'm like, I can go for it. Like I know who I am. It doesn't matter. Like if I win or lose, I discovered who I was in the weirdest of ways. And I was completely comfortable with myself. Um, so we show up to the Olympics and we only have six training runs. And it was funny. Cause like the first day of training, I was like, I'm in fifth place. I'm in fifth place during training. And then like the second day I'm like, Oh my God, I had like a fourth place run. And then during like the last day, the coach is like, Oh, should we change anything? And I'm like, no, we're good. I just need to slide. Like, I just need to like, just show up and just attack it a hundred percent. And yeah, the first day of the Olympics, it was really cold out, like really, really cold below zero. And no one was used to those temperatures at all. So everyone's like super nervous. And like, I felt like I was at home. It was so weird. It's like, I got off the bus in Korea and I felt like I was in like placid. Like I was in the zone. I had, you know, my, my, my wife was with me. My family was there. My friends were there like coaches. I felt like I was at a home game in Korea. And, uh, after like the, the first two runs, I was sitting in fourth place, like two thousands behind and like go back. And then like that next day, like, so it's, it's over two days. So it's four runs total time over two days after the first day I'm sitting in fourth place. And then the next day at lunch, like, you know, I was talking with my wife and she was basically like, just, you, you know who you are. She's like, I will take care of you. Like, even though like this day would decide my life, she was like, I've got you. Um, it doesn't matter. Like if, if you don't win, like I will support you however I can. And knowing that like, I could just, you know, swing for the fences. Uh, I came out that third run, set a track record and like put myself into second place. And man, it was so weird. I like smiled before my last run because I just felt good. It was below zero. Everyone was so nervous. Like I'm sure like I was the least nervous person. Like they're like, oh, this is everything for this guy. Like this is entire life in one run. And I'm like smiling before. And uh, yeah, it was, it was cool. But it's crazy what leads you into those places, right? Like here's this Russian guy helping me out of nowhere, like having your wife and your family just being like, Hey, we've got you. And just learning that results. That's not everything. It's uh, it was definitely like one of the coolest life changing experiences that I've ever had. Um, so yeah, I got really fortunate that like all those things lined up perfect. And I went from, not even being on like the betting pools to getting second place, getting a silver medal at the Olympics. <laughs> I mean, what a result. Oh, wow. I mean, what, an in- wow. what an incredible story. <laughs> it doesn't get any better, really. Yeah. I mean, just the, 
the generosity and just humanness of it is is so there. I mean, it's so strange that you just had that interaction with the the Russian guy, but I'm so happy you did because um, I mean that it sounds like it really turned turned everything around. And you know, a lot of people don't see like how a random act of kindness really has that giant ripple effect. But I, it went right. from you know, hey, hey man, I I see you, I see you working hard. Um, you know, have something that that you can use that that I can't, and then you know, you take home a silver for Team USA. Like that's amazing, and for yourself. I mean, you did it on your own. And another part of that was you saying it was you versus yourself. And it seems like for for this sport and for the mindset that you have to have, you know, with a lot of like extreme sports and mountain sports, is the ability to let go and just be there in the moment. And it seems like you were able to let go of all of the, you know, kind of noise around you and just focus on your life and having fun and, you know, the sport that you've been doing since you were eight years old. So, I mean, I'm, I'm blown away by that story. I know Albert is too, but I just, the, the, the gift and just the, the appreciation of, of your family is just huge. And just how those small little things made the world of a difference. Um, Chris, that's amazing. How soon after did you hear from your Russian friend who, uh, I mean, did you hear that day? I mean, I, I assume, what, well, was he there? Was he actually in Korea watching? I, I, I'm not sure what really happened with the Russian yes. athletes. So, so they found out, it was after that race that they found out that they could compete, but they just were under the, the, the Olympic athletes from Russia was their, was their name. So he actually raced with his sled and I ended up beating him. Um, <laughs> so... It was, it was like so many things went into that, but you're right. I think what was really cool about this Olympics is that I was completely comfortable with myself where I knew what I had to do. And it like, for instance, we travel a lot and our team had this training plan. So we went, so leading up to the Olympics, that race was in Latvia. So that night we slept, uh, the, before the race, we were in Segolda, Latvia. The next night we were in Riga, Latvia before we flew off. We then went to uh, Frankfurt Mines. We spent the night in Mines. Then we flew to Korea. So we had a night on a plane. We landed in Korea. We spend a night at the USA like hotel getting all of our stuff. The next night we went to an army barracks like that was in Korea. And after six nights, I was like, I am done. I am just getting to the Olympic Village on my own. I didn't tell like, but I was just like, get me out of here. So the team stayed there. I got on a train like just to, you know, pedestrian train just like traveled up and like got to the Olympic village early, just knew what I had to do. Like I just had to get comfortable. And because I was comfortable, you know, nothing ever goes perfect at the Olympics. Like the, when the ad, like if you're a U.S. athlete, you get to the Olympics, they sit you down for like briefings. And one of them is like how to control the ripples of distraction. And there's like all these things that can happen. And they're like, you know, this is how you should do this and help like your family. Well, a couple things happened to me where uh, the, the first one was I was um, at the Olympic Village. Like, so my, my wife came and so we had a hotel room. And so the night she got there, I wanted to, you know, say hi. So I, I slept there and I, I was feeling a little uneasy because people were saying how hard it was to get a taxi. So like, I couldn't really fall asleep. So it was like, 1230. I'm like, you know what? I've, we had night races. So like my competition didn't get over till 11 PM. So 
we're trying to stay up late, wake up late to kind of like get ready for a competition. So it's like 1230 and I'm like, Hey, Hey babe, I've, I just don't feel good. I, I just got to get back to the Olympic village. So I go down to the front desk. I'm like, Hey, can I get a taxi? And they're like, no. And I'm like, what do you mean? No. They're like, no, we, we haven't been able to reach a taxi for like all day. And so they call again, no taxi. And I'm like, okay, if you were me, how would I get back to the Olympic village? And they're like, okay, if what time is it? Okay. At 1am it's the last bus. It's a worker's bus. And they like wrote in Korean what to show the bus driver. And so <laughs> they're like, it's, it's going to be here. So I'm like, okay. So I like, I'm running there and I get there like one, I thought it was one o'clock and it was gone. And so I'm just like, it's out in the dark. And I'm like, cool. I have to walk like four miles to the Olympic village now. And so I, I just start walking and there's all these buses. And I noticed that one was running and I like knock on the window and the guy like looks at me and I like hold up the paper and he just, you know, waves his hand and I like keep knocking. He like opens the thing. And I like hold it like, you know, to him. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, doesn't speak English. I don't speak Korean. Um, you can't write things in English because it's like a completely different alphabet. So even if I said like Olympic village, that doesn't do anything. So finally I pull up Google maps and I'm like, like pointing to it. I'm just like here, here, there, there, go, go. And he's like, no, no, no. And I, I give him like a team USA pen and he looks at it and then I give him another one and he's like, okay. And so I sit down. So I use this 60 passenger van at one in the morning to like get back to the Olympic village. And it's like, but, but that's like, it, it's so funny where like, but I'm completely calm doing that. Right. Like some people are like, Oh, you know, like the Olympics distraction. And it's like, no, I, I know what I have to do. And we're just going to, I just felt like I was so comfortable with myself in that moment that like that a lot of funny things like that happened at the Olympics and nothing ever bothered me. It was like, it's really cool. Like I, nothing could bother me. Nothing could shake what I was trying to do. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, ah, that's such a great mindset to have. And, you know, continuing now, I mean, obviously you're, you're still in the sport, but um, you do some coaching and you, you help kids and, and you help other people in performance. Um, when you, you know, see other people, like what from the sport and what from your experiences do you really tell other people to kind of uh, get to that level? Yeah, I think, I think one of the hardest things is to be comfortable with yourself. Um, and that, there's no, there's no recipe for how to do that, right? Like some people like, Oh, I'm going to go travel to Costa Rica and travel around and, and learn about myself. And sometimes I'm like, man, sometimes it's best to just go into a dark room with yourself for like a couple days. And like, you will figure yourself out, like no distractions. Um, that that's always helped me out. But I think it's important to realize that like in this crazy world, like just believing in yourself, right? It's, it's amazing what we all can accomplish when we put in the time, when we just, we, it's not, not taking no for an answer, but when we just learn to push through obstacles. So I guess like for me, it's like, just never give up. Like everything will be hard. Like there will always be really difficult things and just kind of always try to keep moving and just know that you're, you're probably a way better person than you realize that you are. Um, cause for me, like I'm my harshest critic. Like I am like super negative at times. I think that's why I'm a, a pretty okay athlete because I'm like, I can do better. Like I always can do better. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's like, 
when you are with yourself, it's like to be positive and like, you know what, even though you always could do things better, right? Like I know I could always do things better, but it's not always about doing things better. It's about doing your best in that moment, having good intentions and just being like, you know what, I'm an okay person. And sometimes that's all that you need. I don't know. It's, there's no real magic recipe. Everyone's got to find that differently. I still struggle with that at times. Like I for sure have ADHD, probably have, you know, a little bit of depression that runs in my family. And there's times where I'm like, I, I get really hard on myself and it's hard to do anything. Um, especially with social media, right? Like I think people forget that digital, like your digital self, I, I call it my digital self. That's a big extension of me. And I struggle with that at times and I have to take a break and just realize that, Hey, I'm, I can only be a person like, you know, either digital or like in person, I can't be a hundred percent both. And I'm okay with that. You know, like I'm not going to be this perfect person on social media and this perfect person, like in the real world. And that's just me, you know, and I'm okay with that. And it took a long time. It wasn't until recently that I figured that out. So I'm still learning too. So there's, we're always, we're always still striving. We're always still learning and just never give up on that at all. Well, your aura and energy are just so extraordinarily positive. So you're, you're doing it right, dude. And you're, uh, you're, making, you're, you're, making us, you're making us feel real good hearing your stories. So I, I just want to go back for one second. Um, you're, you're suddenly now, you're an Olympian. I mean, that's a big thing. You're like a, a medalist and that's kind of a big accomplishment. So you're there in, in Korea and then suddenly you look down on your phone and you're getting a call from, you have no idea who it is, but you decide you're going to pick up the phone. And this is another, another unexpected moment in your life. So could you take us back there for a second? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got two random phone calls at the Olympics and they both were phone calls that changed my life. And the first one was, you know, this, this lady and she's like, Hi, I'm with, I'm, you know, executive producer for dancing with the stars. And I'm like, excuse me. It's like, yep. Uh, my name is Dina and I'm with Dancing with the Stars. I'm like, are you, are you like, you're serious? And she was like, absolutely. Uh, this, And I'm like, and, and, and my mom loves that show. And so she was like, just wanted to know, like, if you would want to be a part of this. And I'm like, no, I don't really know how to dance. But if my mom ever heard that I turned down Dancing with the Stars, I don't think she would love me the same. So I'm like, and, and also it's a challenge. I love a challenge too. And if you want to learn how to dance a little bit, probably the best way to do it, um, to have like a professional teacher for a couple of weeks. So yeah, it was funny. I, I finished the call. I'm like, yeah, all right. I'm absolutely interested. And she's like, good. Now go to your Instagram and take your number off of your like Instagram page. Cause it was way too easy to find you. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, okay. All right. Probably a good idea. Probably a good idea. So I did. Um, yeah, I as, as a publicist myself, I would de definitely be advising my clients to do the same. Yeah. So I, I still get some crazy phone calls and I'm just like, all right, well, that's just kind of, I, I did that to myself and that's fine. Um, what was the other random call? I, you told me about one. I didn't know there was a second. What was the other one? Uh, it was to do a speaking engagement in, uh, in, in Colorado that would also take me through New York City. And yeah, it was like at the time it was the most money I've ever made in my entire life. And like in two days, it was like six months and two days. And I was like, 
okay, I will absolutely do this. I am flying back from the Olympics right now. <laughs> so yeah, I took my phone number off, but, but those two calls were definitely incredible. So, so what was it like? It was, was it very stressful doing dancing with the stars? I mean, it's gotta be no matter how much of a good sense of humor you've got, you're like on television and a lot of people are watching you. Yeah. Everyone asks like, what are you, what are you more nervous for dancing with the stars, of the Olympics? And I'm like, I felt so in control at the Olympics. Like I felt like I owned it. You know, I've been spending, I spent my entire life for that one moment, literally like all of the cold days training, like 21 years went into that moment. Dancing with the stars, you know, I had six days before I like, you know, had to do a dance in front of 10 million people. And that was terrifying because like, that's, that's not enough time to like, oh, I like, I honestly, every time you watch Dancing with the Stars, I'm surprised that like things don't go worse because there's a <laughs> lot of, there's a lot of times practicing where I'm like, man, I like, there was this one time where I'm like jumping up on the piano and had to do these steps and I was getting it wrong. So like the, like for probably two hours before the actual show, I'm just jumping up on this piano practicing, jumping up on this piano practicing, like. <laughs> It was, it's so scary. It literally, it was, it was probably one of the most nerve wracking things I've ever done. Where was that out, uh, out in uh, California or in New York? Where did you tape it? Uh, so yeah, that's taped out in LA. So, I mean, it's pretty, pretty cool experience. Like you go out to LA, they put you up in a, a, a sweet apartment until you're kicked off the show. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Everyone's like, Oh, are you dancing 12 hours a day? And it's like, no, I, they only give us five. I only get five hours a day to practice. And I feel like that's not enough. So like I would literally come home and like push the furniture and just like kind of do like the moves just so I was like getting extra repetitions because that dancing something that I like, for instance, my, um, my partner, Whitney, she called me brick at first because I had like bricks for feet, <laughs> which is not a good nickname if you're like trying to dance. So yeah, yeah. brick is not a good adjective for a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, wow. So you made it through. You survived. I mean, what a great thing. Like, very few people are going to be on that show. I think it's awesome. And and right now, tell, tell us a little bit. I, I know you're, uh, how long, recently married? Not that long ago, right? No, just, just recently. Um, like, we were planning on getting married in Thailand uh, this May, but COVID kind of stop that so instead we just decided to elope so you know can only stop the party and it's just temporary but yeah we uh just did it very small thing here in utah and we'll figure out a party if we're going to go back to thailand if we can you know everything's just so up in the air with covid right now so it's weird not making any plans just seeing how this rides out but that's kind of where we're at right now Oh, the wedding pictures were beautiful, and I don't say that often. I'm not really that into weddings, but the two of you look so incredibly happy, and, and Utah looks like it's suiting you well. Tell us a little bit about Utah as a place to live, and, and are, is it really just all about nature out there? Is that what makes, makes it so appealing for you? Yes, yeah, Utah has a couple things. So from my apartment, I am uh, six minutes to Salt Lake City International Airport, which I, I literally, I am, well, used to be on planes for a living. So living right next to a big airport was huge, but the airport's right next to downtown. And from the airport, it's only 30 minutes to Park City. So you can get to uh, Snowbird Alta, Brighton Solitude, Park City, Deer Valley, and 
35, 40 minutes from the airport. So it's amazing living downtown. So we have a city here, like it's city living, but your access to the outdoors is incredible. Like a couple of years ago, I got scuba certified here in Utah. There's this place called the crater and it's like a, a 60 foot looks like a, a volcanic like hole. And so this was like in April. And so I had friends who were snowmobiling, uh, backcountry skiing, who were mountain biking and playing golf. And I was getting my scuba certification, like all at the same time. So, I mean, you can just literally do everything here. Like in Northern New York, there's five seasons. It's like, it goes summer, fall, winter, gray, and then spring. And there's no gray here in Utah. Like you can always do something. So it's, it's, for me, it's awesome. I love the outdoors. Like the mountains literally rise 7,000 feet from like the floor here in Salt Lake city. So we have big mountains, um, Alpine lakes. I love going down to Southern Utah, the canyons. I got it. I love canyoneering now, uh, which is a really weird sport, but you just kind of rappel down these canyons. It's, it's intense because you have to figure out these rappels and it's just awesome. It's just the, just amazing access to the outdoors here. So I've been really fortunate with like with COVID just being able to go into the middle of nowhere and go camping and hiking. But I mean, the national parks are really busy here, but that's the thing about Utah. The whole state should be a national park. So there's all these like little BLM land places and these cool canyons and awesome like places to go. So pretty fortunate out here. That's, that's how it got the name God's country. Oh, that's incredible. Uh, that, Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I just never forget being at Bryce Canyon. That was like, I, I thought that was the most magical place I had ever been in my life. Bryce is beautiful. It definitely. It's at the very, it starts at the top of the, um, you know, the, the, as the staircase, I guess, but man, there's some, there's some cool places here in Utah that, you know, you go explore the San Rafael swell. No one knows about the San Rafael swell. It's pretty remote too. Like, <laughs> if you want to, it's right on I-70, right before you go into the swell, it says no, uh, no services next hundred miles. So, you know, it's pretty remote. Wow. Well, clearly you, you're, uh, continue to be an adrenaline junkie. I see some of these pictures and you're leaping from one rock to the next in a Canyon. And I'm like, wow, that dude is just <laughs> very inspired and, and probably out of his mind. I'm like actually <laughs> exhausted looking at these pictures, but wow, there it's just a stunning, just a stunning place for you to make an adventure all the time. It, it is. I, I like the intensity and the beauty and uh, it, it's, it's nice being able to like add those extra elements, whatever. If you would just want to sit in the car and look around, it's incredibly beautiful. If you want to get out like ropes and, harnesses and rappel through things you can do that pretty much from the side of the road and then if you want to go to places that no one's ever been before you can also do that so it just has everything here and you're and now you're continuing looking ahead towards uh, another olympics or um you are right you're still in yep. that in that mode yeah i'm still training so what do we have like something like 500 days to go or something that was just recently or 600 days to go so it's uh, about a year and a half away. It's the next one. And yeah, it's still training full on. Like I had some shoulder and elbow surgery this, this spring just to get ready because it kind of beats up your shoulders after 30 years or 25 years doing this sport. So uh, I'm a little, little, little broken from this, but they put me back together and I'm ready to give it a, one last go. 
Well, when I saw you smiling uh, in your picture from your bed after your surgery, I'm like, that's a positive attitude. <laughs> or the drugs. I, I, was, I, I, was so, I was so cranky in the hospital just getting my appendix out that my own mother was like, screw you. I'm not coming back to visit you. You're mean. So I, I, we actually got a coffee after that. Well, that, that, that one had like a nerve block. So I like can't feel my arm. This is great. Like went to Origin Coffee in Saranac <laughs> Lake and like, hey, guys, how's it going? They're like, what? What are you doing? I'm like, I just had surgery. <laughs> like, you're an idiot. I'm like, oh. yeah. Hey, morphine's talking. We're having fun. Hey, you know? <laughs> hey, no, they fixed it. They fixed my shoulder. It's better now. It's yeah. together. Well, you you really made me want to get out and not just walk in nature, but do something like exhilarating and a little crazy. So I'm going to, we'll check back in with you down the road and let you know if we've survived any of those adventures. Uh, Adam, any other questions from you? Yeah, no, I feel the the same sentiment of I just want to go outside now and like I just feel like I need to to go on a hike or something. Um it's a beautiful day out, so I need to take advantage of it. Um I mean, talking I, I never thought in my life I would ever talk to a, a US Olympian, so this has been huge <laughs> for me. Um, you know, <laughs> like just professional uh, sledding. Professional <laughs> sledding, yeah, you know. <laughs> but still, I mean, like you did it. I mean, you went from being a kid in upstate New York to traveling the entire world. And, and that's huge. And your story and your mindset and just being in tune with yourself really just resonates. And, you know, the, the show is a vulnerable man. And it seems that you are so in touch with your vulnerability um, and, you know, who you are as a person that it's taken you to the Olympics and beyond. So I, I can't wait to see what you do. I'm wishing you the best of luck, but I know you don't need luck. All you need to do is just, like you said, go and slide. So, man, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, it was. I had a pleasure chatting with you, and hopefully you guys can get outside today. Right on. Yeah, the Hudson Valley sunny and, and warm. I'm, I'm going to go at least get a, get a bike ride in before my cocktails. Perfect. <laughs> your, your, your bike tails. Oh, yeah, it sounds like a good combination. <laughs> yeah. I'm, like I'm sure you don't, want to, you don't want to drink in luge, I'm sure. That yeah, would yeah. not oh, be easy. Yeah. Bike tails at 7 p.m. in the calendar. Like, okay. <laughs> well, Chris, we hope you'll come back on uh, down the road because you're just an awesome dude. Really, really appreciate you giving us so much time. Absolutely. Had a blast. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. Well, hey, this has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Fear podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. I'm Chris Mazder. Thank you for listening. <laughs>